Welcome back. We return to our July 17th, 2020 pre-recorded interview with Ray McGovern. Now, I had a chance later, and that was, what, five years ago. We were the first Americans to visit Crimea after it had been rejoined to Russia. When I say rejoined, I mean that the Crimeans voted to be annexed to Russia. Do I like that kind of thing? No, but I don't criticize the Crimeans. The choice was to live under this putsch regime after the coup d'etat arranged by the United States and the West and the accession of a whole bunch of, well, a lot of them were kind of Nazi sympathizer type people who took took control of Kiev. Anyhow, we were in Yalta. It was a, a citizen's delegation, and guess what? It happened to be June the 22nd, five years ago. Now, we were invited to make a presentation, and our delegation was a little bit uh, betwixt and between. How would we do this? What would we do? And I had a long breakfast, and I joined them, and, and they said, what should we do? I said, well, if you like, I can certainly say something. Oh, do you speak Russian? Yeah, I do. Well, what would you say? <laughs> Everybody was so nervous, you know. I said, well... I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll recite a poem. I'll recite a poem that will fit in with this day of grief. And so uh, so they said, well, that sounds okay. Is it in Russian? I said, yeah, it's in Russian. Who, who wrote it? Uh, a fellow named Nikrasov. Nikrasov was known as the Payet Ruskoy Skorbli, the poet of, of Russian pain. And he was beautiful. I don't know if you have time to take about two minutes for me to recite it and translate it. Uh, would that be okay at this point? No, absolutely. Please, please recite it. Okay. Well, the name of the, of the poem and the reason why it, uh, it was so appropriate for the circumstances was Vnimaya Ujusum by me. Ujus is almost an onomatopoeia, okay? It, it means the terrors, the awful things, the terrible things of war. So paying attention to the horrors of war. And it goes this way. Внимаю ужасом войны, при каждой новой жертве боя. Мне жаль не друга, не жены, мне жаль не самого героя. Увы, учащица жена, и друга лучший друг забудет. А где-то есть душа одна, она так грубо помнит будет. При лицемерих наших дел и всякой пошлости и прозы одни я в мире подсмотрел святые. Искренние слезы, то слезы бедных матерей. И мне забыть своих детей, погибших на кровавом небе, как непонятно плохое своих поникнувших детей. Now here's a rough translation. Paying attention to the horrors of war and every new victim of battle. I feel sorry not for his friend or even for his wife. I, I don't even feel sorry for the hero himself. The wife will be comforted. The best friends forget their best friends. But somewhere, there is one soul who will remember unto the grave. Now, amid all the hypocrisy of our affairs and all the banality and triviality, unique among what I have observed in the world are these sacred, sincere tears. Those are tears of poor mothers. They do not forget their children, who have perished on the bloody battlefield. It means, just as a weeping willow can never lift its branches, so too is the case with weeping mothers of people who have perished on the battlefield. 
Mm-hmm. Well, luckily, I had committed that to memory way back in college, and um, there were some people there in Yalta at this rather big observance of this day, June 22nd. It was the 70th anniversary of the Nazi invasion. Uh, there were people who lost relatives, like fathers, like grandfathers, uh, one or two wives. And, um, and it was just a poignant reminder to me what their reaction was, not only that an American could remember and recite this poem, but that an American could understand understand what this meant. And, uh, and you know, it's really hard to understand any of this, given the propaganda that we're subjected to daily. I'll say one more thing, more recent. Uh, it was about a week ago, the uh, New York Times uh, chief in, in Moscow, I forget his name right now, he had this big piece in the New York Times, and the title was something like, They Can Destroy the Monuments, But They Can't Destroy the Ideological Hatred of the Russian People. Well, so what does that mean? That means you can knock down statues of Lenin and Stalin and Jerzynski, but the Russians will never, never change. They're out to get us, and you better watch it. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of uh, a fellow named James Clapper, who may end up in the in the Clapper, actually. Yeah, right, right. Their, <laughs> uh, the genetic, their genetic tendencies, right? Yeah. You know, he's of the uh, uh, General Curtis LeMay School of uh, Russian Studies. <laughs> They're evil, evil. You got to bomb the hell out of them. Well, he famously told uh, Jake Tapper, I think it was, this. He said, you know, based on my experience with the Russian people, they're almost genetically driven to be deceitful, to critique, and to co opt, and blah, 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 blah. Right. It's in their genes. Yeah. No, I mean, it's really important that you tie all that together because this is the mantra that is, it just continues everywhere you turn, whether it's MSNBC, their coverage of the Russiagate and Putin and all of these things, you know, time and time again without the evidence being there, even after it's been disproven, they don't come back and acknowledge that they overstated or misstated or misrepresented they spent six months, a year, or a year and a half repeating nonsense, and they don't even have the decency to come back. I mean, and, and that's why in that speech by Putin, I mean, I'm not a, I don't, I don't idolize people. I idolize ideas that make sense and that point towards equity and social justice and such. But even Putin, you know, you, you, you in your comments, Ray, indicated how the United States and Western allies helped Russia ward off Germany by making donations of munitions and raw materials and food and equipment. And President Putin actually acknowledges that in that speech. He actually gives a number. He said, we will always be grateful for the assistance rendered by the allies in providing the Red Army with munition, raw materials, food and equipment. That, that help was significant, he says. About 7% of the total military production of the Soviet Union came from that source. So not only did you have people like FDR and people like Churchill acknowledging this incredible contribution to the defeat of Nazism that Russia did in the moment? You have these other things. The other thing I wanted to turn our attention to, you mentioned it too, and I want you to elaborate a little bit more. And I want to remind folks we were visiting with the esteemed Ray McGovern. He actually had 27 years in the CIA, as you can tell from his eloquent 
Russian rendition of that beautiful poem. He's fluent in, in Russian as well, not just the, the history, but the language. But going back to your article back in 2015 about Obama snubbing Putin and, and Russia in the World War II commemoration or whatever, you make the point, which I think is really important, that this comes on the heels of the Ukrainian coup, okay? And I want to be really clear because Putin, in his comments in this speech that you cited also, that he makes the unequivocal comments that Nazism in any form, in any fashion, is irredeemable and there is no statute of limitations type of comments. I don't have them right in front of me. Yet, our result of our coup promotion in the Ukraine resulted in the enabling neo-Nazi reemergence in the Ukraine. And I just want to document that. That's a really powerful statement to make, but that in post-coup Ukraine, for the first time since the 1930s, the followers of a movement that valued Hitler and preaches anti-Semitism entered a European government in a very, very significant way. Two political parties, the Svoboda Party and the Right Sector Party, both fascist neo-Nazi parties in the Ukraine, together had great influence in the post-coup government. Following the U.S. promoted, if not outright engineered, 2014 Ukrainian coup, there were eight cabinet positions in the post-coup government awarded to neo-fascists. This was largely a fascist government of our making. Oli Tayunbak is a Svoboda Party head, and Andrei Perube, the co-founder of the neo-Nazi Social National Party of Ukraine, later named Svoboda, both followers of the Ukrainian Nazi Stepan Bandera, who collaborated in World War II for the mass murder of Poles and Jews, was part of that government. Ihor Tenyuk, T-E-N-Y-U-K-H, he was the interim defense minister. He was a member of Svoboda's political party. We already mentioned Andrei Perubi. He was, became the National Security Council chief. Dmitry Yarsh, the deputy head of the National Security Council of the police. Oli Maknitsky, a Svoboda member of parliament, is a prosecutor general. Uh, just a couple of more, and I think it's important to put these names out there, but Alexander Sitch, S-Y-C-H, Svoboda parliamentarian, a deputy prime minister for economic affairs. This guy, Suri Kivit, K-V-I-T, leading member of Svoboda, headed up the education ministry. Andre uh, Mokinik, minister of ecology. And then Ihor Shvavake, uh, he's some agro-oligarch Svoboda member that was appointed minister of agriculture. So at the end of the day, you had the first European government post-World War II that has ever been riddled with neo Nazis. And then lastly, there was an article that came back out in, in November of 2018 that documented that a recent indictment of several California men involved in that Charlottesville violence, Ukraine's neo-Nazi Azov Battalion, is believed to have participated in training and radicalizing U.S.-based white supremacists. So the Obama administration puts into power, literally, this type of government that trains white supremacists. I mean, it's not a big leap here. Whether it was intentional or not, of course, it's arguable. But the fact of the matter is, is that we enabled this horrific type of resurgence. And four members of this Rise Above movement called RAM, described by the FBI as a white supremacy extremist group, were indicted for conspiracy to riot over that August 2017 violence in Charlottesville, among other things in the affidavit that was signed by FBI Special Agent Scott Beerworth. 28-year-old Robert Rundo is said to have traveled to Germany, Italy, and Ukraine 
in the spring of 2018, where he allegedly met with an official of the National Corps, a political wing of that Ukrainian neo-Nazi Azov battalion, whose name was Olina Semenyaka. So, you know, we have done the same thing, Ray, with enabling terrorism and these neo-Nazis. And, and yet we were so ignorant of our own foreign policy outcomes and spent so much time on MSNBC and all these other stations demonizing Russia for what we're showing are overstated. We're not saying Putin is the greatest president and all of this and all of that, but have a fair and complete critique of all of these issues. Can you, can you speak a little bit more about the importance of that Ukrainian coup in respect to the war against uh, Russia and the demonization of Russia a little bit? Yeah, sure. It's, uh, well, it was labeled by uh, George Friedman, who used to head up Stratfor and is a fairly widely respected analyst, as the, the most blatant coup in history. And it was. And why was that? Well, because it was advertised two weeks before it happened. Our Assistant Secretary for Euro European Affairs, Victoria Nuland, was speaking to our ambassador, Jeffrey Pyatt, in Kiev. And it went like this. Uh, Jeffrey, we got it all, we got it all set here. Uh, Yats is the guy. We don't want these other two guys. We got it uh, pretty much wired. We're ready to go. If we need somebody to solidify things, Biden is ready. We have that assurance. He'll come in and, and solidify it. So we're all set to go. Now, when was that conversation? Very early February 2014. Well, Putin was in Sochi at the Winter Olympics. What happens on 22nd? Oh, well, there's a coup. And uh, what happens? Well, there's a big disturbance in, in Kiev and the... Uh, the, the elected president is removed in favor of who? Yatsinyuk. So that's Yats. So the whole thing was orchestrated. It was, uh, I mean, it was so bad that the ambassador, who, you know, is a diplomat, he said, well, Secretary Nuland, well, what will the EU say? And she said, F, uh, I can't use the F word here, but she said, F the EU. <laughs> Now, one way we know that this conversation was completely authentic is because three days later, she apologized to the EU, saying, I really shouldn't have said FDEU, but I, you know, I'm really sorry about that. So what did that mean? And, and this, Ray, this Ray was a recorded telephone conversation, right? This is made public in the yeah, public right. domain. That's, right. Yeah, it was, it was put on YouTube yeah. on the 4th of February. So... You know, it's it's like uh, public knowledge that there's going to be a coup. And when I first heard about that, I said, oh, poor Yatsenyuk, he's never going to be the prime minister now because everybody knows that the U.S. is planning to put him in. And by God, there he is on the 22nd. He becomes prime minister. So what I'm saying here is that uh, everything after that was blamed on Russia. I mean, mm -hmm. let's say the Russians did a coup in Mexico or Canada or even, even uh, Cuba. I mean, would we not react? Of course we would react. And so what Putin did was something that his predecessors didn't do. Khrushchev, one of the uh, Soviet Party first secretaries, sort of just included Ukraine in the, in the Soviet Union uh, by, well, actually, it's the opposite. He let Ukraine become an independent republic in the Soviet Union because he wanted some political favors from the Ukrainians. And he did that by signing a piece of paper called an ukaz, okay? What did Putin do? Well, he knew darn well that most of the people in Crimea would want to rejoin Russia. 
but you have plebiscite, and the plebiscite showed, if you believe the figures, and it was monitored, over 90% wanted to rejoin Russia. And so that's what happened. Now, do I favor that kind of thing post-war? No, I don't favor that kind of thing at all. But I can understand it. And, of course, this was used as a cudgel to say that the Russians invaded Crimea. Now, a word about that. I gave a speech about four or five years ago at a primarily Catholic university. And uh, one of the uh, professors was talking about how proud she was, how proud she was of her 10-year-old son, uh, because he, he had a sign that he's marching in front of the Russian embassy, and it said, Putin, have you not heard the commandment, thou shalt not kill? <laughs> Am I proud? She said. So I raised my hand. I said, well, what does that refer to? She said, oh, the killing in Crimea. I said, well, how many people get killed? That's right. Oh, I don't know, thousands. <laughs> right. And I said, well, I feel, would you believe there was nobody killed? Nobody, uh, so there you have a microcosmic example mm-hmm. of how people are misled by our media and by their history books. And so it's an uphill struggle. And you and I and others who you know, have this weird devotion to the truth need to spread the truth around so people can really think about this stuff clearly. One other thing I'll say about Russian history, most people don't realize that, you know, the Russians have been invaded forever. Right. Um, I mean... They didn't get a language that is Slavic until 9th century. And before you knew it, 1240, the Mongols invaded. Genghis Khan, and, uh, all these guys, okay? now yeah, Napoleon, stay, Napoleon invaded, right? I mean, he got toasted in, in uh, yeah, there, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to say that the Mongol invasion lasted from 1240 mm-hmm. uh, for 240 more years. So mm-hmm. what am I saying? I'm saying that as Europeans were coming out of dark ages into the Renaissance, mm-hmm. the Russians are still fighting off the, what they call the Tatarsky Iga, the Tatar yoke. Mm-hmm. And no sooner did they get finished doing that than they were invaded by the Swedes, by the Hanseatic League, by the Lithuanians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then it wasn't until Peter the Great got everything together in about uh, 1700 that they started having a modern European country. So that kind of history is indelibly imprinted on Russian children. Russians don't forget that kind of thing. And more recently, of course, those who are still alive remember World War II. Putin, as one who lost his brother in the hunger in Leningrad, lost his father, who was exempt from service, but went down to the bridge anyway and got wounded and killed. You know, people just don't understand this. And the Russians do understand that if you don't have this immediate experience of your country being invaded, of your friends being killed, well, you just don't know anything about war, and that makes you a very, very dangerous country. Yeah, in your recent article in June, you actually um, take an excerpt from Putin's June 19th speech, but just to reiterate the number of people, I mean, 27 million is an incomprehensible number. I mean, let's just admit mm-hmm. that. But when you look like at the proportion, you have that statistic that he mentioned that it was something like in the United States, we lost one out of 320 Americans in the World War II, the Soviets one in seven. Yeah. Listen, we, we've got a little bit more time left that I want to one other question that's really important, because I think it, sure. it has a lot to do with the misrepresentation and the rewriting of history. I just want to remind folks that we have been getting educated by Ray McGovern here. He works with the Tell the World publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of Savior in Inner City, Washington. He's been a specialist on Russia, but also a CIA analyst for some 27 years and been recognized for his work during that period with various distinguished medals, some of which he returned based on his calling out 
U.S. foreign policy issues that were inhuman in his in his perspective. So a man of great torturous. principle. Go ahead, Ray. Did you want to make a comment on that? No, I was just going to say torturous. I mean, that's uh, universally, I yeah. think, abhorrent. And uh, I uh, gave my distinguished uh, medallion back that I received at retirement. I gave it back to the uh, head of the House Intelligence Committee saying I didn't want to be associated in any way with an agency involved openly in torture. Right. You know, you put your you put your life and limb on the line. You've been arrested many times, not just arrested, beaten, and you just get up and, and stay after. But with all that being said, the, you know, the main contributions for me has always been your writings, your reflections, uh, your historical substance. And the last question I have for you for tonight's show has to do with the non-aggression pact with Germany that Russia, I believe, signed in August of 1939. And it has been represented as some type of closed-door, backdoor type of working with and initiating the World War II by some distortions of history. Can you clear the record as to your understanding of how the non-aggression pact should best be represented. President Putin in his speech spent quite a bit of time uh, on that subject, but what is your interpretation of that history? Well, as Putin says, uh, what he did was order a uh, a real search of the archives uh, to get to the truth about what this Molotov-Ribbentrop pact was. I have to say, incidentally, that this was the week I was born, right? (laughs) The, The pact was on the 23rd of August, 1939. I was born on the 25th, and on the 1st of September, the war started. So, you know, it's kind of coincidental, but it really it piqued my interest in this whole thing. What Putin points out here is that if you look at the archives, the Germans wanted to split Poland in half, roughly speaking, and Russia didn't, re- didn't respond to that for the longest, kind of, the longest period of time. And then finally, when they saw the, the Nazis were going to come in anyway, they said, okay, we'll, we'll go a little bit into, into Poland. And so... It's a very different characterization of what actually happened there. Was the pact uh, a terrible thing? Yes, it was a terrible thing. Does Putin say that? Yes, he, say, he says that as well. He said it was a, a kind of mistake, not by the Soviet people, but by the leadership. And he's very, very candid in taking issue with what Stalin did. And that's what most people don't really realize, that, that he takes Stalin and, and the repression there, and he criticizes it directly, and uh, it's a far cry from uh, what Stalin had in the Soviet in the Soviet Union, today's Russia, despite the best efforts of the chief of the New York Times Bureau in Moscow, his name is Higgins, by the way, mm-hmm. to portray Russia as not having changed one quit since Stalin's time. That is really irresponsible. Very good. Well, we are, we are just about out of time. I wanted to save the last 30 seconds or so. If people want to access your writings, you're writing every week now, and I keep up with those writings. Uh, and the the website location, if you want to share that with our audience, please do so. And thank you. Ray. Sure. Yeah, it's, uh, the website is uh, not hard to remember. It's Ray McGovern, R-E-Y-M-C-G-O-V-E-R-N.com. And that'll get you out to the website. There's a Twitter account. There's a Twitter thing there and a, a couple other things. And what I usually do uh, is publish first on consortiumnews.com, since I think that's the best, uh, well, I know that's the best website for uh, putting out good stuff, and there's a lot more good stuff than anything I could pretend to put out on that. So consortiumnews.com and raymcgovern.com, and I also have a Twitter account that's at raymcgovern. Okay, Ray, well, st- take good care of yourself. Just another point about consortiumnews.com. 
you know, we lost a great, great friend and, and historical resource and contemporary writer, amazing journalist, Robert Perry, a, a, a few years ago. And he's the one that initiated that website. And so he has attracted that level of journalism, as you indicated. Ray, thank you so much for uh, making time with us tonight. We can't, I can't tell you how much I appreciate having access to you on a fairly regular basis. And please take good care of yourself, and we will stay in touch. And you too, Pedro. Thanks very much. I will, friend. Okay, see you next week. We take you out with Land of Naivety. See you.